This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Hello and welcome to another ATP Tennis Radio Lockdown Podcast. I am Seb Lozier and this week, while everyone in tennis remains holed up in isolation, including players and coaches of course, we have another exclusive chat to bring you with a former Australian Open champion now coaching a star player sitting inside the world's top 10, who we also hear from. It's the latest of many interviews we've done since the coronavirus lockdown started and it is well worth visiting the back catalogue of recent podcasts to hear from the likes of Paul Anacone and Jamie Delgado. We have a load of players lined up and in our very first podcast special released on Friday, we had almost an hour with the new ATP chairman Andrea Gaudenzi to talk about his love of the game and most importantly, his vision for the game. That is well worth a listen. This week, we also hear from dad-to-be Mike Bryan and we hear from the current world number 10. But we start with a player who this time last year was having a major breakthrough on the clay courts of Monte Carlo. Dusan Lajevic turning it on. Had a great tournament, I would say, in Monte Carlo. Oh, that's beautiful tennis, it really is. It's been the biggest result of my career and all the new possibilities open up. Dusan Lajevic is flying right now. It's been a great experience playing in Monaco and uh, playing so many matches in, in one week. Coming to the finals, first final in the ATP and being in the Masters, even more incredible for me. Oh, come on! Outstanding! I felt really great during the whole tournament, um, played my tennis the way I see myself can play. Dusan Lajevic marches into the quarterfinals in Monte Carlo for the very first time. Well, I've tried to become a little bit more aggressive, to be more dominant with the forehand, which I didn't do so much in the past. Dusan Lajevic. A semi-finalist in Monte Carlo. Into the last four at a Masters 1000 event for the very first time. And try to use that as my weapon from from all kind of positions on the court. And uh, I'm a guy who tries to build up and to put all the puzzles together for something to work. Dusan Lajevic's dream week in Monte Carlo continues. It's a first final for the Serbian, and it's come at Masters 1000 level. Dusan's dream season got even better when the right-hander went on to win his maiden ATP Tour title in Umag. Yeah, it was, it was great, it was mental. I finally got the title. I, I, I doubted myself quite a bit uh, if I'm ever going to win it, you know. So it's good that it came finally. And the feeling is really great. And making the silverware all the sweeter, this was a family affair for the serve. To be so close to home, to win the first title, it's a, it's a great feeling. 
from the first day my cousins were there with their kids and my girlfriend, my parents, so my friends from childhood. I couldn't ask for more for the first title. Now Dusan is ready to dream big and work hard. The goal is still the same, improve and get higher in the rankings and I think I'm in a good position because now I have the confidence plus the work and uh, it's all about me now if I'm going to do it or not. ATP Tour uncovered and Rob Curling there with Dusan Lajovic. Coming up, a former world number seven and Australian Open champion. But before that, let's hear about the player he's currently coaching. 2017 was a breakthrough year for David Goffin. His first ATP 500 title, his second title of 2017, his fourth career title, who comes through in straight sets against Adrian Manorino, 6-3, 7-5, and he goes back to the 10th best player in the world. The Belgian was victorious in Shenzhen and Tokyo to ensure qualification for the NITO ATP finals. Ladies and gentlemen, winner of four ATP World Tour titles, the first Belgian player to qualify it's the biggest win in the career of David Goffin. He takes down the world number one on his debut here at the NITO ATP Finals. Significantly, he moves into the final of the NITO ATP Finals on his debut in this competition. Since then, Goffin has faced some challenging times. Last year was a, yeah, a lot of ups and downs for me. At the beginning of the year was very tough. I was a little bit uh, lost. I changed coach, started to work with uh, Thomas Johansson. There it is, Goffin, very much back on the big stage. What a performance from the little man with a big heart. It's Goffin who's through to his first final since 2017. And then uh, week after week, I started to play much better. Sometimes you just have to say enough is enough. Four times invited to the party of a Masters 1000 final, only to be denied at the door, left on the doorstep. Uh, David Goffin has made a bold statement this week. I'm coming to the party. Make room. A dynamic and impressive performance against Gasquet today. In the second half of the year was much better, and then I finished the year number 11, so at the end it was a good year. I would like to thank uh, my coach, uh, Thomas, who uh, uh, we had a good week, very good week again, and uh, we, uh, we are working hard, working hard to be where uh, we want to be. And uh, so we, uh, we will continue in New York and, uh, and after that. So thank you very much for uh, the hard work. And uh, thanks around for the week for the support as well. Thank you. And I started 2020 really, really good. So 
I have to continue. I'm back in the top 10, so I will try to fight to stay in the top 10 and to make some good results this year. And what a way to win it for David Goffin, the biggest win of his career. Try to stay in the top 10 and the goal with the biggest tournaments, try to make good results. Last year I played some, uh, I played the final in Cincinnati, I played the quarters in uh, Wimbledon, so I will try to go one round further. It will be uh, a very nice year. That piece with Gabriel Clark recorded earlier in the season before the coronavirus took hold. But one thing is certainly unchanged. As David said, he's now working for the second time in his career with Swede Thomas Johansson. He spoke with me over a slightly patchy connection hold up with his family in Monaco. We have been in uh, complete lockdown now for weeks. And it's, uh, yeah, it feels strange. You, you can't, uh, you're very restricted to what you are allowed to do. Uh, here in Monaco, they are very, very strict uh, with just going outside just to go and get some fresh air. The only thing you can do here is pretty much go to the pharmacy, go to the supermarket. There's actually no room for practice and, and you know, hit some balls. or So it's, it's, it's very, very strange. And uh, David is also here in, uh, in Monaco, and I, I've seen him once for... I think it was like three minutes before two police officers came up to us and said, uh, you're not allowed to stand here and talk. So it was just to go home and, you know, continue the conversation on the phone. The mental side of things, well, for everyone, not just for tennis players, hugely important at the moment. I mean, what kind of place does David have? I'm sure you've been there before. Has he got a bit of space or, or is he cooped up a bit? He has a, a balcony that he can, you know, he can work out uh, on. So he has his daily program that he got from his fitness coach that he's doing, uh, you know, on a daily basis. But uh, now we've been, like I said, we've been in complete lockdown for, for four weeks. And now it's, uh, you feel like you want to at least go out on the court and hit some balls. But, you know, it's impossible. And I think it's going to be impossible for X amount of more weeks, especially here in Monaco. Listen, I, I wanted to talk to you also about the second stint coaching David. You were you were with him, I guess, more of a consultant um, capacity a couple of years ago, or 2016. You're now his his full time coach. Have been now since last year. How, how does the David Goffin of 2020 compare? Do you think with with the younger guy that you were working with alongside his former coach a few years ago? Well, like you said, in 2016, I, I started to work with him just after uh, Melbourne. And then I was more of a consultant or advisor or what do you call it? Uh, so Thierry and David, they had worked together for a very long time. So I think they wanted maybe to have someone else by their side, just with a fresh view and uh, fresh ideas. And 2016, it was a very, very good year. We were working really well together. And then now I'm, I'm back with David since, like you said, last year. And we're both extremely happy and, and very proud that he's back in the top 10 because that's where I think he, he belongs uh, when he plays his best tennis. 2020, uh, you know, he started off the year really well in, in ATP Cup. He had two big wins, uh, one against Dimitrov and one against uh, Rafa. And then he had, for me, a quite good Australian Open. He lost to Rublev and Rublev was 
was on fire uh, during that time, so it was not so much to say. But then it was a little bit of a disappointing um, indoor season because I felt that he could have done a little bit better, but he ran into tough opponents. They were playing really well that time. So I think that we've been working on a couple of things, and I think we, I mean, we're still working on them to get him more complete as a player. Everybody that has played David, they, they know that when the ball is in play, he's, he's, he's extremely tough to beat. But we also need to improve his uh, offensive game. We need to improve his, his serve a little bit. Uh, he's not the tallest guy on the tour, but still I think that there are room for improvements on his serve and on his uh, offensive game. And then everybody knows as well that tennis is not only about tennis. Tennis is about what's uh, between your two ears. And that's also very important to, to try to, uh, for me to try to share my, my knowledge and my experience and, and my previous matches and all the mistakes that I've made in my career, just to make sure that he, will, he won't make the same. So um, I think he's, he's on a very, very good track. And I was really looking forward to the clay court season because last year he didn't play that well on the clay court. So he had a big, big chance to improve his results and also his ranking during this time. But now we just have to focus on, you know, the next time we step on the court. You say make him more aggressive. Just to sort of delve into that a bit more. I mean, his his backhand has always just been such a bulletproof shot. It's such a good shot. Is there more improvement to be made on his forehand? Is that the side of, of the court where you think he can be more aggressive and perhaps finish points off a bit quicker? Like you said, his his backhand is is extremely good, and I think also his forehand is is extremely good. But I I, I completely agree with you. I think that he ca- he could be a little bit more aggressive on his forehand side because when he plays his best tennis, that's the the side that he's he's hurting a lot of of players. But it's also it has it has to do with with confidence. It has to do with uh, uh, how you feel on the court and you know how you you feel the ball and. There are so many things that needs to be in place for him to be that aggressive. Everybody could see in ATP Cup where I think he played really, really, really well and played the type of tennis that we've been practicing on, that we've been working on, that we've been talking about. So I was so happy with, with those weeks and also in, in Melbourne, I was very, very happy with the way he was playing. So I think uh, you know now if we, if we can get back to the court... And uh, if we can, uh, you know, make a, a restart a little bit and try to get back in, you know, into the same groove as, as we had in Australia, I think he would, you know, he would have a good time ahead of him. You mentioned the mental side of things a, a couple of times. I mean, I guess to improve and to work with a coach on improving, you almost have to admit that there's something to improve. Does that in itself require quite a lot of brutal honesty and, and an honesty between the two of you in terms of the relationship? And if, and if so, is that something that comes easily to David and to yourself? Just, you know, when you came back in the second time, was it quite easy to say, right, okay, if we're going to do this a second time, I need to be able to tell you exactly what I think? And, and is he receptive to that? The good thing about David is that he's very open-minded. He's not afraid of, of trying new things and... Uh... He's he's a very good listener. Sometimes I feel like he he could be a little bit more honest with me because 
that way I can I think I can help him even more. Uh, we have come very far because uh, David is is the nicest guy in the world, and he's very he's quite shy, so he's not a, a big talker, uh, you know, around the table. But he has improved a lot because now we get to know each other really, really well, and we both know that we when we are together, we we can be brutally honest with each other. I think that is is very very important that. You know, just because you tell your coach that I feel nervous, I'm tight, I, I'm confused, I'm, it doesn't have to be a weakness. For me, it's a strength because then the coach can actually step in and, and you know, maybe try to help. With David, I think mentally the big thing that we're working on is to try to make him tougher, try to make him uh, more confident on the court. Like I said, he has improved a lot, and that is one of the big reasons why he's back in the top 10, because he's such a good player. But if he can be a little bit tougher on the court, I think he can take another step in the ranking. And it was two big finals, wasn't it, that helped him get back towards that ranking as well. I think Halle and Cincinnati last year, both big finals. Ultimately, he, he lost both. I mean, if we're talking about taking that next step and I guess being more ruthless is that in terms of the mental side of things where you think he can make the biggest step because on paper his career look it's a fantastic career but four titles three grand slam quarterfinals okay he's reached the final of the Nito finals which was a massive thing but still for someone as good as he is it seems a fairly modest return on his talent do, do you agree I think that if he can, like I said, if he can be a little bit tougher mentally, I think, or I'm quite sure that he win, he will win more titles. He will have better results. And like you said, his career is amazing. He has an amazing career. But for me, it's also very important that he understands how good he is. I mean, if we compare us two together, we are quite similar in many things. But then we are very different in, in some other things. So I, was, I think I was a little bit stupid because I think that sometimes when I went in on the court and when I felt that the surface was right, the, I was in a physical good shape, uh, I felt the, the ball in my racket really well, I knew that it doesn't matter who's on the other side. I knew that I could, you know, I could take him down. But sometimes I lost anyway. But that was my mental approach to the matches. Since David is one of the nicest guys on the tour, he's also very, very nice on the court. And for me, I want him to be a little bit more... We, we joke and we say, I want him to be more like a Viking. I want him to be a little bit more brutal. Not in, in a bad way, but I want him to be a little bit more confident. Because I told him so many times that if I would have had your level when I played, I would have been so confident maybe a little bit arrogant, you know, because I knew that my level was there. So, but the, like I said, I, I think it, her, it has to do also with your personality. And like I said so many times that David is the nicest guy in the world. I don't think I've met a nicer guy in, you know, in my life. But still, when you go on the court, you need to be a little bit more confident and a little bit more like a Viking. The similarities are 
uncanny in a way. Same height, you had the same career high, um, similar-ish games from, from the back of the court. So I guess you're right, the inference is that David wants the benefit of your experience. How much does he ask for it and how much do you offer it in terms of what you did and what you did in certain situations, finals, big matches? We talk a lot more with each other. We are more honest to each other and I try to share you know, even more things from my career. So I think the, you know, the dynamic discussions that we have now is a big step in the right direction. And we try to, to do that with the whole team because he has a, you know, his team around him with the fitness coach, with the uh, physiotherapist um, and with the doctor and everything. We, we try to be, you know, have a very good communication. If, and if there is something wrong, you know, we try to announce it instead of just, you know, holding back. This will help David a lot now for the next upcoming years. And it doesn't matter if, if we are still working together, but I still, I, I think that it, it will help him a lot both on and off the court. Do you find it easy as well to, to look back and almost deconstruct what you did for, for David's benefit? Like, and this is a really cute way, by the way, of asking you to tell me all about your Australian Open against Marat Safin. But for example, in that match, have you gone through the process of, you know, if not for your benefit, then for David saying, right, what did I do right that day? And why did I, what led to me winning that match that day? One thing that is very important is that former players that are now coaches, they forget very fast. And this is a, a thing that when I'm with David uh, and he plays a match and I, I feel like I never did that. I never did that. I never behaved like that. I never thought like that. And, and then now on the tour, my former coach, Magnus Tiedemann, is, is um, also coaching Radu Albot. And I was working with Magnus for 11 or 12 years. And when we sit uh, sometimes, uh, you know, for breakfast or whatever, and we discuss, and I said, Mago, I never did these things. I, and he said, what? You know, like, you did that all the time. How can you forget? So this is the bottom line. I think formal players that are now coaches, they forget very fast. So that's the number one thing. But to answer your question, when I went in against Marat, in the final of Melbourne, I was in the best shape of my life. Physically, I was extremely strong. And that made me feel very confident. Then I knew that I was the big underdog. Marat was the favorite by far. I also knew that I would be very nervous going into the match. And I was extremely nervous going into the match. But after X amount of games... I started to feel very comfortable on the court with all the people watching and, uh, you know, playing a Grand Slam final. So, and then my level just started to pick up. So even if I lost the first set, you know, in the end of the first set, I felt that now I reached my level. So now it's just to keep going. So I was extremely confident in that match as well. So that's why I say I'm, I was, I think I was a little bit stupid sometimes, but then when I was up 6-1 in the, in the fourth set tiebreak, so I had five match points, then the, just the whole body just shut down, you know, and I still don't remember. I have to watch the points after that because I don't remember. It was just like, I've never, ever had that feeling 
on a court before and after. But just the whole body just shut down. I had no idea how to structure the points. So this is very strange because I was... Um, Normally, I was never nervous before the match. I could be a little bit nervous, but that, I think, is good. But when I was 6-1 up in the fourth set tiebreak, having five match points, I don't remember anything. So it's a strange thing, but that can happen. That is incredible that you literally just blank out like that. I mean, are the losses easier? Are the final losses, the big losses, in a way easier to remember because they're more painful? Or like helping David to get over the... A loss like the Cincinnati final. I mean, in in one way, you just have to be rational and say, listen, Daniel Medvedev was playing just lights out, hardcore tennis over a period of weeks and it would have taken a superhuman effort to, to beat him. Or or is David still beating him up and saying, look, that was my biggest chance yet? I think it's a combination, to be honest. Uh, that Just that specific match... Daniel came in and he had barely lost a match. The streak that he had in, in, uh, in the States, I've never seen anything like it. But I still think that going into that match, I, I, I thought that we had the chance because David was quite fresh. Daniel had played a lot of matches. And, um, you know, the first set for me was crucial. David had a lot of chances. And then he also had chances to come back in the second set. Uh, and in the second set, in the end of the second set, Daniel played really, really well. He was serving so well. But there I could see that he was a little bit tired. So that was a little bit our chance. But, you know, looking back to that match, I think David played really well. Daniel was just, you know, the better player. But um, I still think that, you know, David had small chances in the first and also in the second. And I think that if he could have taken... The chances in the second maybe forced Daniel to a third set. I think he would have had a very good chance. In terms of your own approach and how you coach, are there any coaches that you particularly, I guess, look up to or you know follow in terms of the way they do things? I mean, there are always loads of Swedes out on tour. Do you guys talk? Or is your own coaching method and philosophy constantly changing and, and therefore is it is it kind of a, a bit of an evolution with, with David? Or are there certain people that you look to for, for sort of, you know, a reference point? I try to be very open-minded because I think that if you, if you think that you know everything, I think it's, it's uh, quite dangerous. So I try to be very open-minded. I have a few people around me, uh, a few coaches as well that I, I, I talk to a lot when I'm out traveling. Of course, the Swedish coaches. Uh, my former coach, Magnus Tiedemann, I think is, a, is an amazing coach. and uh, We had a great time together. Magnus Norman, I talk to a lot. I think that he's, uh, you know, what he has done with his players is, is amazing. I mean, both with, uh, with Robin Söderling and, and with Stan, it's, it's, uh, what he has done with those two players is, is for me uh, magical. But then I also talk to different international coaches like uh, uh, Gilles, the, the coach of uh, Daniel. We, we, we talk a lot. Uh, uh, I speak a lot to Neville Godwin, um, the coach of uh, Chung. I try to ask and see how they see things. And, and uh, so I, I try to be very open-minded because you always learn something 
And then also when I'm watching tennis on TV, I, I really enjoy listening to Mats Villander, to Robbie Koenig, to all these former John McEnroe, all these former players, because you're always going to learn something. So as a coach, I'm not sure how I am. I, I think I'm... You know, you have to ask uh, David or, you know, the, the former players that I've been coaching. But I think I'm quite honest. My wife says that I'm very black or white, which is not uh, that great sometimes. But I think I learned a lot when I was I was coaching uh, Maria Sakari for one and a half year. And on the women's tour, it's it's extremely important on how you communicate. And I think I learned a lot from that time you know how to communicate because you can always say the same thing you know in two ways you can either see it say it in a positive way or in a negative way so um i think i learned a lot how to communicate with with the players i hope at least i learned a lot that you have to ask you know like i said the players but the communication to the player and how you address things i think is very important what would you say is the best piece of advice you've been given by someone like a Magnus Tielemans or anyone could be a player? What, what, what piece of advice always sticks with you as you, you sort of think, God, that was, a, that was a helpful piece of advice? Honesty has been the key in my coaching role. You know, if I... But again, you have two ways of saying it. And I try always to say it in a positive way even if what I see is not good. And this is, um, you know, being a coach is not only being a coach on the court. It's also you spend so much time together outside the court. So, and with my players, I always try to have a good relationship both on and off the court. And as a player, I thought that that was very important that even, you know, when the session or when the match is, is done, we can still sit and we don't have to talk about tennis we can talk about life in general but still have a good uh, chemistry uh, between us so and this is the thing with with david as well you know i i think that we we spend a lot of time together i think he sees me more than he sees his fiance and i see him more than i see my family so you know we have to be uh, good friends but it has to be a, a, you know a respect between us so and i think that that's been a very success, successful so far I just have one final question, and, and that's really just, I guess, thinking, projecting back into the day job, really, and just thinking what the plan is for when you can get back out on a court. I mean, are you already planning what that looks like? Um, is there going to be one thing that you're going to need to get back out there and do first? How, how, what, what's the kind of progression? What kind of steps will you need to take to, to get him back out there and get him hitting? We get new information every hour, it feels like. So what it looks down here in Monaco is that we will be in a complete lockdown until May, maybe middle of May. And then we don't know what's going to happen if, if they let us go outside and if they let us go and you know play tennis or whatever. But for me now, the most important thing is for him to work on his fitness a lot and also try to stay positive. We try to talk to each other or text each other on on a daily basis to just to see how how everybody's doing and how you feel and you know how the session was and so for for us is and I think for for all the coaches players it's impossible 
it's impossible to find the perfect schedule during this time because we might be able to play US Open or the next tournament might be Australian Open, you know? So we, we, we don't know. We don't feel stressed to go out hitting. To go out hitting is more about feeling the ball and get the days to go a little bit faster, you know? That's how it is for the moment. But right now, we, we, we can't do anything more than, than we are doing. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. One man trying his very best to see the positives in the current situation is Mike Bryan. One half of the most successful doubles team in history, tennis is currently taking a back seat as he awaits the birth of his first child. Yeah, I'm hunkered down out here in um, California on Camarillo where I grew up. We got a place out here and um, after Indian Wells got cancelled, I uh, drove up. And I've just been here with, with Nadia, who's um, going to give birth. And um, it's a crazy time. It's a very uncertain time. Just I'm not, on, um, I'm not in ready mode, that's for sure, because I uh, haven't really touched the rackets since Indian Wells. And, you know, I'm working on the body a little bit. But um, I know that, that there's at least 100 days or more until uh, it's go time. And it's probably going to be the, the U.S. hard court summer. So this is a great time to just slow down and, and be with her and um, just really kind of savor these moments of, you know, the final days of, of her um, pregnancy and going to really uh, enjoy this, this birth experience. It's my first one. So, uh, you know, I've seen how, how much joy it's brought to Bob's life. I know it's a beautiful experience and people try to explain it to me, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm open for anything. These stay-at-home orders, what challenges do they present for you and Nadia, in particular given your situation? Yeah, just like, just like everyone, it presents challenges. You know, the sim- simple necessities are, are tough to find. I've, I've gone down to um, Whole Foods and Sprouts bright and early in the morning, and there's always a line wrapped around the building, and uh, you can't stand next to people. You're about 10 feet away from them. And then you go in there, and there's no eggs. There's, there's no milk. In terms of the pregnancy... Are there things you'd like to be stocking up on, like baby wipes and nappies, diapers, you call them? Can you get these things at the moment? Yeah, diapers are tough. Uh, you know, we're, we're living on Amazon and, and searching through there, but it seems like uh, the channels have slowed on that end. But um, Nadia's been doing a great job. She's had a lot of time to get the baby room ready. And um, we got the car seat. We packed the bag just in case we got to rush to the hospital. So we have the baby essentials um, ready to go if um, the day comes. And, you know, it's kind of a blessing for, for us right now at this time just to actually spend some, a lot of quality time and slow down because it would have been a rush job for me. I would have been rushing off to Miami, Houston, and then coming back for the birth and then zipping out for Madrid and, and Rome. So, you know, the silver lining is that, you know, I can really savor this experience. Talking tennis, Mike, the farewell tour has clearly been affected by all of this. Which events are hurting you the most to miss? Yeah, I mean, the, the event we were really looking forward to uh, was Indian Wells. And uh, obviously all the players are down there and, and raring to go and it's so beautiful. And that's, you know, our home tournament. We have so many people from California that come down and support us. And we just always looking for, we look forward to that first round match on that stadium court you know, one, 
and we were a few days away and then you know it seemed like a kind of a house of cards and then there was one case of corona in the Coachella Valley and they canceled any wells and we're like okay we're just gonna wait until Miami and and it's just everything started falling uh, Miami went away that was another one we were super stoked to go defend our, our title and that feels like Bob's home turn now just because he's a South uh, Florida guy. But um, I know friends that, you know, are losing their job. You know, they, they're living paycheck to paycheck and they don't have a lot of savings. And, and so this is, you know, devastating for them. So, you know, they're all in our thoughts. And yeah, I mean, would we like to play the French in Wimbledon um, since it's our last year? Uh, of course, you know, that, that, that could have been, um, you know, great to, to go to those tournaments for one last time. You know, you're just seeing the positives in it, that it's a time to, to really slow down. We've never really had a time like this in, in 22 years on tour. It's uh, even during the off season, we're, we're running off to um, play exhibitions or charity events, and we're never in the same spot for more than a couple of days. So to actually wake up in my own bed, have some routine. You know, I love my morning routine. I get up and I, you know, do some stuff and um, I wake up really early and meditate and, and get my day sorted. And, um, you know, Nadia, we've been going on long walks and, and I've learned how to cook and just doing different things. So, uh, you know, I'm just taking the, the positives from it. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that we didn't get to say our goodbyes to the, to the fans down in, in New Wells in Miami. And so, uh, yeah, we're, we're just hoping we can play the U.S. Open um, one last time and, you know, some of the, the U.S. hardcore tournaments. Um, we'll see. Has there been any discussion with Bob about extending the farewell into next year, or are you still focused on finishing at the U.S. Open? Right now, we just got to wait and see. Um, if we can't play another match the rest of the year, and we can't play the Open, and you know, there, there's a possibility. You know, we are we are fighting Father Time. It's a tough opponent. You know, we're going to be 42, um, but. In you know, the bodies are fresh because we're not putting a lot of strain on them right now. You just got to be careful to just keep them moving because it seems like if you don't roll the arm over and you don't take, you know, care of your body in this time, um, it, it can tighten up. So that's all on the table. I haven't talked to Bob a ton about it. It's all happened so quick. And, you know, I haven't seen a lot of Bob. He's, he's, he's down the street. He, you know, has a place down there. And he's just kind of locked off uh, from us. So, but yeah. I mean, we'll have a discussion for sure. That is it for this week. Do check out the ATP Tennis Radio back catalogue for our recent chats, as I said, with Jamie Delgado, Paul Anacone, and the ATP chairman, Andrea Gaudenzi, all available as podcasts on iTunes, TuneIn, and Spotify. And there's plenty more great guests to come over the coming weeks, including some of the best players in the game. Let us know who you'd like to hear from and we'll do our very best to make it happen. Remember, check in also with atptour.com for brand new video from the ATP Uncovered TV show and also the biggest names from both the men's and women's tours on the brand new Tennis United. I'm Seb Lozier. Thank you for listening. Stay home. Stay safe. If you like this podcast... Please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. Review, review, review.